Welcome to Watershed's January podcast. My name is Mark Cosgrove, cinema curator here at Watershed. I'm delighted for this month to be joined by philosopher Julian Bugini, author of such books as The Ego Trick and What's It All About? A question I find myself asking numerous times. Um, Julian has just written a new book, The Virtues of the Table, exploring uh, eating and thinking. So Julian, just tell us a bit about um, the book, how, how it came about and the ideas that you're interested in researching. Well, it's quite a long time stewing, as it were. It's really irresistible to use these terrible, cliched food metaphors. But I think even in a sense, that tells us something, that you know, food and eating does permeate our way of thought and our way of living. And philosophers, I think, traditionally, haven't really paid much attention to it. I think that is down to a bias which goes all the way down to Plato, which is that somehow seeing that our minds and our intellects mm. are our better part, at least, if not completely separate, from our bodies. And the stuff of the bodies, the things that we share with animals, have not been considered of, of great interest. But I think that's kind of missing something really important. I think that food is actually a very interesting lens to look at human existence and human life, precisely because, on the one hand, it is completely tied to our animality. It's the most basic thing we do. But on the other hand, you only have to look about how we use food, how we create remarkably elaborate dishes, the invention we have with it, and its cultural importance, the way in which it gets into religious rituals, family gatherings and so forth. See, it's also a huge part of our culture and our creativity as well. So food, it's only one lens to look at human nature through, but I thought it was a very interesting neglected one because it brings those two sides of our, our natures together. It's strange, really, because if you going back to Plato, the, in that civilization, food was obviously an important part uh, of, of life then. Um, so it's surprising that, that it didn't feature, is that because, you see, the separation of the, the, that Plato made between the thinking and the rest of life, as it were? Yeah, well, I think the mistake can be understood partly through something Aristotle says. Now, I'm a big fan of Aristotle, but I think he actually gets something fundamentally wrong. He looks at the different natures of plants and animals and humans, and what he looks at is what, which level, as it were, has, which a level below doesn't have. And so, you know, animals are able to guide themselves and eat, and plants aren't. So animal nature is best understood in that difference and human nature is similarly understood by our difference and that's the our ability to think rationally right and so forth but i think that's kind of mistaken actually because if you want to understand our fundamental nature why should it be only by looking at the things which make us different because those things rest on all the rest and it's deeply connected with the rest and you know i don't want to sort of bang on about sort of neuroscience and everything which is used wheeled out all the time now to back up anything. But actually, there is a kind of lesson there too, because what neuroscience shows is that these higher functions of the brain, likewise, depend upon the lower functions too. So, you know, you can't just slice off the most elevated part of human nature and consider it in isolation. You have to see how it re relates deep down to even our most basic animal parts. And from my uh, days as a student, uh, Claude Levi-Strauss, the anthropologist, seemed to me to be, be ex bringing that food into it in those traditions and rituals? Is that something that you sort of reflect on? Well, I don't, not much, actually. There are lots of things. I mean, it's a huge subject. And there are lots of things that, at the outset, you would have thought, surely I'm going to cover that. That's one of them. I don't in the end, because I looked at the anthropology of food, and the anthropology of food is very, very interesting, but it didn't really relate to the core theme I was trying to look at, which comes out in the title of the virtues. Now, virtues is a word which 
you know, some people would say I shouldn't use in the title of a book these days because people get the idea of, I, I don't know, Victorians, prudery, religion or something. But virtue in the Aristotelian sense is really just about those kind of character traits and dispositions and habits we have which enable us to lead a good life. And what I'm really interested in is the way in which, if you look at all sorts of aspects of food, they provide sort of great illustrations and sort of lessons in the virtues. So, for example, take a virtue of self-control. You know, self-control is something that we have to exercise around food these days. Well, I mean, I do. I know a few lucky people who don't appear to need it, lucky them. Most of us, we kind of do. And so, and if you look about what that means then, actually, it's, it doesn't just become a random example. It's a very, very interesting one, because again, self-control is about marrying the sort of the animal instincts, the things we have, we actually can't get to the bottom of and switch on and off with our higher rational capacity. And, you know, you have to take both into account if you're going to succeed in that. You can't kind of imagine that by sheer willpower alone you can lose weight or something. You have to understand how your body works. And at the same time, you know, you have to kind of be in tune with that. So because I was looking at those kind of things, there are all sorts of interesting intellectual things written about food which I just had to put to one side. I had to be ruthlessly selective, actually. Otherwise, if I put in everything I found interesting about food, I would have ended up with a, a multi-volume... Uh, with some recipes. I've got recipes. Uh, I do have recipes. recipes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I did put some recipes in, funny enough. Now, the reason for that was I wanted to kind of like, it's a way of grounding the book in a way. At the end of each chapter, has sometimes it's a recipe, sometimes it's something about sorting or buying food. So I don't tell you how to make cheese, but I say a bit about choosing cheese. And, and the reason for that was I, partly I just wanted to sort of ground it. And also wanted to show that you know, having this kind of interest in food and being able to, to, to see its merits doesn't require you to, to be anything sort of really complicated or highfalutin. All the recipes are things that are very simple to make. I mean, I cook all the time, but I'm not that kind of real foodie cook who spends three hours at a time, you know, uh, separating out eggs and whisking them and leaving them to stand in somewhere which is two degrees centigrade. Yeah, I don't do that, but I do simple home cooking. So, um, you know, the thing about the recipes is they try and sort of connect the more abstract themes, little everyday practices, really, which, again, is a very Aristotelian thing, because Aristotle was very keen on the idea that if you want to live well, you have to kind of develop the right kind of habits. Food is something we eat generally three times a day, sometimes more. So again, you know, it's, it's an opportunity to get good habits, right habits, mindfulness, attention, whatever, self-control. With the, the rise and rise and rise of food programmes on television, um, of chefs, of celebrity chefs, I mean, it's everywhere now that, that cooking, and it comes with it, almost like value judgments as well about, you know, uh, you, whether they're a good cook or a bad cook, but also about the quality of yeah. food. Is that something that you've been reflecting on? Well, yes. I mean, it's, the whole phenomena of the sort of media interest in food is very interesting because there's still a bit of a disconnect. Uh, people are becoming more interested, but I think if you live in a certain kind of portion of the demographic, I think it's easy to get the impression that everyone's now cooking good, wholesome food with well-sourced ingredients and so forth. If you look at what the best-selling lines are in supermarkets still, it's same old kind of stuff. <laughs> but in, yeah, in terms of the quality, I mean, it's very interesting because if you take this idea, for example, that, you know, taste, it's all in the eye of the beholder, or the, mm. that's the tongue of the beholder in this case, that, you know, you can't have any objective judgments about whether a food or a wine is good or better than another one. And people trot out some of these experiments they've heard about, for example, yeah. where wine experts are fooled into thinking a cheap load of plonk is. Mm that it is and so forth. Well, I, I look into that because I think it is very, very interesting and uh, it's, it's hard to summarise, but 
I think that sometimes people are really reluctant to say something is better than something else or someone's taste is more refined than someone else because it seems kind of anti-egalitarian. It seems like elitist. And also because they think, you know, what's wrong with liking this rather than that? Now, the point is those are both kind of mistakes, I think, because to recognise that something is better than something else is not necessarily to say you should like it. Liking and being good are two different things. And I think, yeah, we should be fine about that. So when it comes to wine, for example, I have no question in my mind. Wine connoisseurs appreciate wine much more than I do. They, they discern properties in the wine which pass me by. And that makes them better wine tasters and it makes some wines better than others. What that translates to in terms of what I should prefer to drink myself is a separate issue. So you don't have to go around judging people because they don't have the most refined tastes. For a start, you know, I mean, why have the most refined tastes in wine? You know, it might be more important to have more refined tastes in, in film or but, art. But isn't there a, a sort of aspiration behind that that you're aspiring towards um, some values yeah. that you want to be part of, whether it's knowledge, whether it's 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 class, yeah. whether it's you know. Yeah. No, that's that's exactly right. And I think one of the reasons behind the book is that I think we need to reflect a little bit more about what those values are and whether we're aspiring to them in the right way. So, for example, you know, I've got a chapter on organics. Now, I find it really interesting to talk about organic food well, with people. This seems to be the, the kind of virtue. Uh, yeah. Yes. Because, you know, if you raise any question marks about whether organics is all it's cracked up to be, people often get very, very upset and angry. So, of course, it is. And, well, why is that? Well, I think it's because they generally associate organics with a set of values which are important, and they associate non-organics with all sorts of nasty values, like, you know, uh, environmental degradation and so forth. Now, that's fine, but you need to do that to realise that the line between good and bad food does not divide neatly upon the organic axis. Now, it's true. Pick up a random organic product and a random one off the shelf. Yes, generally speaking, the organic one will be better for all sorts of reasons. I agree with that. But it's not the key thing. So rather than just sort of accepting this proxy we've got from culture at the moment to say, oh, organics is great, you should buy organics, and if you don't give your children organics, you're kind of abusing them, um, we should sort of push behind that and go, well, what are the real virtues of organics that we're trying to get at? And let's focus primarily on them. And remember that organic itself is nothing more than a, a handy rule of thumb, which usually works, but doesn't always. Mm. And can you escape the politics of food, the economics of food, the industrialisation of food? No, absolutely not. Um, a lot of people will have one or two areas where perhaps they're aware of things and will be selective. So people might decide to buy fair trade bananas, for example, and that's their kind of ethical purchase. But it, it gets difficult because once you start thinking about the whole ethics and politics of the food chain, you know, your whole shopping basket becomes oh, a kind yeah. of a political <laughs> act and it becomes very difficult. And I think it's very easy for people to dis despair of that yeah. and say, well, you know, I can't possibly control all of that. But I don't think that's the point. The point is, you know, doing better is better than doing nothing. Mm. You know, perfection, you can't get to perfection, partly because it's not practical, partly because not everything is within your control, and partly because a lot of the time we don't really know, to be honest. I mean, there are things where what really is best for the environment in terms of different options. It's not always the organic thing. And unless you sort of like study the literature and work out for which plants there is less environmental impact grown conventionally than organic, etc., etc., you can't do it. But I think we ought to try because we have responsibilities. You know, there are people at the end of supply chains, so the things we buy, and their livelihoods depend on this. It's not just, you know, to do with their 
working conditions and their pay, which is important. Also, the things to do with health. So, I mean, one good reason for being careful where you buy your bananas, for example, is that in some of these plantations, the workers are exposed to what some people consider to be dangerous levels of pesticides working in the groves. So, yeah, it is difficult. You know, I, don't, I think it would be very indulgent of us to simply, you know, roll with this new foodie trend and just enjoy all this lovely produce which is coming over and not give any thought at all to it. There's a couple of uh, thoughts. One is, um, you know, that thing about the political act. And, of course, with apartheid in South Africa and obviously being so topical at the moment, I mean, that, that was one of the ways in which you made a political gesture was you didn't buy the oranges from South Africa, yeah. you didn't buy the grapes, you didn't buy the, the food. Uh, so that, that is that thing about you go in there with your trolley and you become a political, <laughs> political, yeah. political activist. The, the, the other one is I heard a story about school kids that were taken to City Farm right. he, here in Bristol and the person that was from the City Farm was telling them about the chickens and the chickens lay eggs and you know one of the kids said I thought eggs came from Tesco's yeah and I mean that disassociation that that shopping can have between that food chain part of yeah. it but simply you you can think oh it comes from a shop now that is true that's really important and it's very interesting around meat actually I mean I've been on a perhaps a typical sort of journey with mm. meat eating in my life. I grew up, it was just what you did. I got concerned about it and a couple of members of my family sort of went vegetarian of sorts, still eating fish and stuff, and I kind of went with it. And I was never really kind of convinced that it was wrong to eat animals, but I was really concerned about the factory farming and the methods. And of course, and when I started out doing this, there really wasn't much choice, you know. Now what's changed in the interim is now there's much more awareness of that, Thank because largely perhaps people went vegetarian and protested against it. So now you can have, it's not too difficult to find meat which is much better reared. Now of course some people would say that nevertheless if you're still killing it and keeping it, it's wrong. I, I talk about those arguments in the book, I don't accept them. But in terms of seeing the food chain, um, the, the last animal, as it were, I went back to eating, which I, I didn't eat before, was the pig. Because, you know, I had heard and understood pigs were quite smart animals. And I was kind of worried that, you know, perhaps you couldn't really take a pig to slaughter and everything without causing it huge distress, you know. And I actually took a pig to a slaughterhouse. It was a pig that had been reared on the land of someone I, I know who lives outside of Bristol. I knew it had a really good life. Uh, I took it to the slaughterhouse and saw it getting slaughtered. Now, often when you hear people talk about experience of going to an abattoir, that's the thing which puts them off meat. For me, having went, that's what made me feel comfortable that I could eat meat. Not because it's pleasant, I didn't take great pleasure in it, no one does. The people at the abattoir don't, you know. Mm. The guy whose job it is to put the slit in, in the neck um, said it's a gory sight. But seeing it close up, to me it seemed this was okay. If you treat the, the animal well, it was, they showed no distress going in. In fact, two of the pigs, were, one pig was trying to mount another as the one next to it had been stunned. You know, that's how oblivious it was to, to what was going on. So. Yeah, I kind of, I, I do respect the impulse behind vegetarianism. I think it's a good one. People who are vegetarian are certainly trying to be more conscientious than people who don't think about their meat at all. But, you know, finding out more and understanding the food chain can, you know, really change your perceptions of things. It's interesting, that uh, story about the pig and the, the relationship with the food process. Um, a friend of mine in Spain, who's lived in Spain for years, went to the village's annual celebration of killing the pig. And what really struck him there was the connection between the animal, the livestock, yeah. the community, the village. And of course then um, the pig gets killed, you know, in a very 
uh, ritualistic but also celebratory yeah. way that then you know becomes chorizo becomes you know all sorts of parts yeah. of uh, feeding the village over the next few months as well as the sort of fiesta that happens at that time and it seems to me with the industrialization of it that's that's the kind of aspect of it that is that is missing yeah that's true and yeah i mean my, my uncle in italy i mean he he slaughters pigs and makes uh, salami from them i think when people have that real connection with the land and the animals they, they generally have a healthier attitude now i mean sometimes people not necessarily some farmers do mistreat their animals for sure but I don't think people go into farming for that reason. And to the extent that they, they do, it ends up being because they, they feel forced to. Mm. In, the, in the documentary Food Inc, they, they, they speak to this chicken farmer. And, you know, over the years, by little steps, they've been forced into more and more, you know, industrial processing, more and more intensive. And, you know, they hate it. Uh, but they're, they're stuck in a situation whereby they've taken out the loans. And mm. It's very hard for them to get out of it. Consumer choice is the only thing that's going to, well, regulation obviously has helped ultimately it's down to whether people demand uh, regulation and shopping it's not either or you can campaign politically for change and also you know shopping well isn't an excuse for opting out of the other thing and, and, and vice versa but it, if demand is there people will will do it you know even places like mcdonald's they, they went to cage free eggs way ahead before it was uh, obligatory but they're not on free range uh, cage free chickens because they've done the maths basically and they know that people won't pay that because people want the breast meat and mm. in order to make it economic, you've got to be able to sell the other parts mm. as well. So if they rear you know, really humane chickens, they're left with all these bits they can't sell, it becomes too expensive. People will say, yeah, I do want a free range chicken burger, but not at that price, that's too mm. much. And they'll do something else. Lots of issues and complexities to take uh, into the shop the next, yes. <laughs> the next time you go in. Now, the, the book's been um, published at the beginning of uh, January yeah. and we're doing a season of films. Yeah. Um, we've called the season Recipe for Life, Film, Food and Philosophy. What can people expect from the films? Well, we've chosen some films which all deal with food in different ways. I mean, I think film is actually a very good vehicle for philosophy. Now, the way in which people often write about film and philosophy is they basically use it as a series of either case studies, you know. So here's an illustration of something. Um, and, of course, famously, the, the Matrix became the great uh, industry of, for that. But I think that's a perfectly legitimate way of using film, and I've used examples from films in my writing before. But what I think is more interesting is the way in which you can actually kind of do philosophy through film. In other words, film can provide some philosophical insight into the issue that you're looking at. So if you take something like um, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, for example, which is about this master sushi chef in, in Japan, you know, you could have an abstract debate about how to live and excellence in life and so forth. But what you've got there is something which puts flesh to the argument. It's not just an illustration. If I was to say to you in an abstract sense, you know, you can live a good life by dedicating yourself to something, almost anything. It doesn't really matter what it is. It doesn't have to be a high purpose. It could be something as simple as chopping fish. But if you dedicate yourself to that, you can have a life which is in lots of ways extremely meaningful and purposeful. You might say, can you? Really? I don't know. Well, you watch a documentary and there you've got an argument. Now, it's not the end of the story. You can, you can argue back with it, but you see there embodied more than a formal argument can do. So, you know, we were interested in, in looking at the films that would show something, not just as an illustration, but perhaps try and change your thinking about food and its role in our lives. So the, the four films are Giro 
dreams of sushi that you just mentioned, La Quattro Volte, Big Night, yeah. and Mooman. Yeah. What what about those films? What what those other ones? What kind of insights do they provide? Well, La Quattro Volte is an interesting one because people who see the, the summary may not think it sounds too much like a, a, a food film, but actually it is about food because it's about farming. It's about a small community in Italy, and it really is about. More than anything, it's, it's, it's one of these wonderful films which shows like the rhythm of the season, the rhythm of life, and how, you know, being close to the cultivation of, of food and growing of animals and all this kind of thing, brings a sort of a different sensibility to life. Now, it, it's something that seems very alien to us urban dwellers, but I, I think seeing that kind of thing can make us reflect upon the ways in which, well, actually, we can bring a little bit of the awareness of the turning of the seasons to our lives. Partly by just paying more attention, even in the city. I mean, in the city here, looking over the harbour side, there are still trees which at the moment are losing the very last of their leaves. And, you know, if you attend to those things, you'll notice them changing. The way we eat can do that as well. So people talk about one of the great, you know, mantras these days is we should be eating seasonal food. And there are lots of reasons given for that, which I think, well, you know, maybe don't quite add up in the sense that, you know, Bananas, for example, well, they're never seasonal for us, are they? You know, and they're always seasonal over there. It, it doesn't really, really matter. But actually, I think one of the best reasons for eating more seasonally is it just it gives you that more of a sense of the passing of time. When the asparagus arrives, you know, you have to, even if you grow things, even better, of course. But you know, when the asparagus arrives on the shelf and it's the first season asparagus, it's another marker of the time. And I do think there's something about living in the harmony of, of the cycle of the seasons, which is actually quite important and, and enriching. It both has this effect of making us appreciate more the moment, but also become a little bit easier about the passing of time, because it's a constant reminder that things are always in flux, nothing stays the same. So it's a good way of like countering that grasping impulse, if you like, we have to think, it. no, 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 you know, time must stand still, we must not get older and decay. The, the thing I love about La Quattro Volte is the, the, the goats, because he's a, he's a goat, uh, herdsman is that the kind of goats take over and you're, you're just that you're that close civilization yeah, and nature yeah. and you're that close to nature sort yeah, of yeah. reclaiming uh, which was lovely um big night the stanley tucci film is yeah. is like a kind of celebration of running a restaurant yeah uh, an italian restaurant at that that's a very interesting one it really shows how important food is for people's sense of identity and where they come from and how you sort of hold on to that when you go to an alien country mm. without giving too much away there's, there's a scene there the chef is more of a purist about this than the brother who does front of house and you know they have the americans requesting meatballs with their spaghetti sauce and you know he's, i don't want to give them meatballs you know this is an american abomination etc and it's those kind of compromises so it brings out all these themes as well about you know authenticity and, and stuff. What does it really mean to maintain the traditions of your country? It's the kind of thing, once you pick away at it, it becomes extremely complicated. I mean, people tend to think it's fairly straightforward to imagine what's authentic, traditional and so forth. But all these things are constantly in flux and lots of things we think of as being, you know, hardcore traditional just aren't. I mean, pasta, for example, in Italy does go back a long way, but it only really became the national mainstay in the 20th century, second part. Uh, parts of the north were polenta eating uh, almost yeah. entirely, and pasta was hardly ever eaten. Tomatoes only sort of, you know, obviously it's only when they discovered the new world they came over at all. So, you know, things are always in flux with tradition. And, you know, the, the value of tradition is trying to maintain that link, that story with the past, but it's not about 
you know, freezing it, like imagining that the story is written and all we have to do is repeat it. You have to keep on writing it in a way which maintains the connection, but doesn't stop it dead in its tracks. And the final one, the, the Moo Man, is very much going back to your earlier point about um, farmers and farmers. A, docu a lovely documentary about a farmer trying to maintain his values in life, uh, rearing the, the cows, milking them and, and working the land. Um, it's a lovely observational documentary. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a theme which is really interesting. I mean, we kind of got more aware of it in this country, I think, but still, I don't think people sort of take it all the way through. They're kind of aware there are issues around farmers, you know, basically having to pay a price set by the wholesalers. And to be fair, supermarkets have responded to this, partly because of uh, customer demand and things that are better than they were. People don't perhaps appreciate the extent to which you know, the, the livelihood of animals and farmers is very much dependent upon what we choose to do. And it's very easy just to sort of like point a finger and say, oh, it's, it's Tesco, it's Sainsbury's, whatever it might be. But, you know, they stock what people buy. I've had, you know, near me a, a, a sort of model independent food store opened and it was it's surrounded by these little, you know, small versions of supermarkets. And it's still there, a couple of years later, it's doing all right and everything. But, you know, you only have to go in to see it's not being frequented as much as the other places, and why not? Well, it's kind of obvious. It's expensive to shop there. Why is it expensive mm. to shop there? <laughs> well, because to produce food in the way we'd like it to be produced is expensive. So, you know, people have got to be very careful. On the one hand, they're ready to complain about all the evils of the supermarket, but the reason they shop there is the reason why the supermarkets do it that way. It provides things which are cheap and plentiful. And, you know, in, particularly in times of recession and everything, you've got a choice between uh, cheap and plentiful or more expensive and you've got to be a bit more careful. It's a tough choice to say, well, no, I'm, I'm going to buy less. I'm going to pay more for it. With the, the film um, season in January, we've got the brunch screenings, we've got the brunch part, we've got the film part, yeah. and we're also going to have the philosophy part because you're going to introduce the screenings and then be around if people want to yeah. discuss. Exactly, yeah. yeah, I'm going to introduce, I don't want to go on too long. When people go and see a screening, they don't want a huge long introduction, but I'm just going to sort of set things up a bit uh, without trying to give away too much of what's going to happen. I think the main idea, what I really want to try and achieve is, is give people some things to sort of like be thinking about as they're watching it. I don't want them to sort of to tell them how to, how, exactly how to watch it and what to see and, and what to think, but I want to sort of like perhaps you know, frame their viewing yeah. of the film in a way which makes those philosophical things more salient. I like that uh, idea though that you go into the film to engage in a philosophical discussion. So thinking of the film as a philosophical discussion, yeah. I think, is quite, it's really exactly. nice. Exactly, and something yeah. that you engage with. There is a kind of a dialogue mm. there, you know, obviously uh, one in which you have to sort of, like, in a sense, play <laughs> both parts once it gets going. But, you know, you're responding to something and seeing it as saying things, but also seeing it critically as well, because, of course, you know, the vision of the filmmaker isn't necessarily exactly right, and they may, they may be distorting things. You might come out thinking that Jiro, the sushi chef, has completely wasted his life on this. Yeah, what a complete waste of time, you know. The same thing. Every day, this is his mantra, the same thing every day. You know, you might think that's terrible. He should have actually sort of like, you know, at least tried a few burgers a few times. Um, but, you know, engaging with it. And, this, and then afterwards, the idea is that I'll, I'll be around. You know, I'm not going to vanish off. If people want to chat, they can. At the same time, if they want to just go and have their brunch, yeah. equally fine. Yeah, great. Julian, thanks very much. Thanks, Mark. Looking forward to Thank it. You.